Hello and welcome to Autistic Tidbits and Tangents once again. Uh, today's episode is about supporting families through the diagnostic process. And Kara. I am really excited to introduce my friend, Dr. Garth Smith, who is a developmental pediatrician. He's the medical director of Kids Inclusive Center for Child and Youth Development, and also an associate professor of pediatrics at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to Autistic Tidbits and Tangents. Candid conversations between autistic off-hour professionals. <laughs> cool. Trigger warnings for this episode include diagnostic framing, functioning labels, and occasional use of person-first language. So, Garth, welcome to Autistic Tidbits and Tangents. I know that you have extensive uh, experience working with families and helping them to better understand autism and how to support their autistic children and teens as they grow up. Uh, so I'd love to hear some ideas you have right off the bat, early days, pre-diagnosis. Uh, what are some things families can watch out for? What are some things they can come into a facility like yours, a center like yours, uh, and share with developmental pediatricians? So I think uh, the the approach that I take with families is, is not just to, to look at um, the, the negative things about their kids, but to look at the positives. Because sometimes Asking, asking families to look at strengths of their kids can, can help with the diagnosis because some of the strengths are actually, you know, their knowledge about lots of things, you know, their extensive knowledge of things. So I always like them to, to start thinking about the positive things about their kids. But, but autism is an interesting condition because it's, a, it's, a, it's both a qualitative and a quantitative disorder qualitative because it's how they do things that are different and quantitative because it's excessive amount that they do certain things. So um, the qualitative things, they, they just tend, they do things all the kids do, they just do it differently. And they also do a lot more of it. So, you know, they'll get involved with something, whatever activity that may be, Pokemon or something like that. And they go, they'll have millions of Pokemon cards and no details about everyone. So I think it's it's the importance is watching the for both of those things. Does your child sort of um, have a variety of interests or does your child have fixed interests? In terms of early diagnosis, in terms of the younger child, the young infant, for example, it's much more subtle. And, and, you know, we don't like to make the diagnosis earlier than a year to 18 months because it's much more difficult in that situation. So what we're looking for in those kids is more sort of the, um, you know, the early developmental milestones. So things like, you know, kids engaging, you can sort of play games with an infant from the time they're about four months old. You can sort of, you know, play with them and 
and they'll smile back and they'll they'll coo with you and that sort of thing. A lot of autistic children who are kids who are going to be autistic don't do that very well. And some of them do, but many don't. Uh, and the parents will say, it was hard to engage with my baby. Um, as they get older, parents will call them and look at something and they don't join. They, they don't have that joint attention. So, um, or they don't reciprocate. So if they want something, instead of looking at the parent and indicating, you know, whether by sound or by saying mama or dada, and then looking at the object they want and pointing at it, they just scream. So instead of showing that sort of joint attention, they tend to just get straight to, to crying and then the parents have to guess what the, what the child wants. So some of those are, are sort of early signs that we look for. The other one is, is regression. So sometimes kids start to speak. They may say mama, dada, and, and you know, baba for bottle, for example. But then the parents say all of a sudden at 15 months, they stop doing that. And they just go back to cooing or not speaking at all. And that can be quite concerning for parents. And that's sometimes about a third of autistic kids show that sign. They, they just don't um, communicate anymore. And it causes parents concern. And they often come in and they get lots of testing done, like hearing and those kind of things. And EEGs looking for seizure disorders, a condition called Landau-Kleffner syndrome, uh, which is rare, but it can also coexist with autism. So they get all kind of testing done, and then finally they get to us and they get, uh, you know, evaluated in more detail. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the early developmental signs. What we're noticing now is there are also some motor developmental signs that can also occur. These in, these kids often are are quite low tone come from very early on. They may be late with things like crawling or they, they may never crawl, but they walk eventually. Um, so so they, the hypotonia or low tone is often an early sign we look for in some autistic kids now that get maybe a bit of a red flag. And, and that's something which is kind of new and evolving. So I guess those are the main things, the, the lack of engagement, um, the lack of nonverbal communication mm -hmm. uh, and and the uh, this this social uh, back and forth interactions that you normally see with other kids. Those are the early signs. When I see a child, sorry. Let let me just jump in and see if we can address an autism myth right here, right now, based on right. what you're saying. So these things that you're describing, would you would you say that those are um, predictive in terms of how, um, and, and I, I do this with, with quotation marks because we don't like these terms too much anymore, but are these things predictive for how high functioning or low functioning an autistic person may become? Right. So some of them are. So for example, um, some of the high functioning kids some of the high in quotation marks. I'm in saying that because it's a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, basically, will um, will not show some of these signs as early, uh, and in fact, may get missed because they they actually may be early talkers. They may be um, they may be clumsy still with their motor skills, <laughs> but they their their verbal skills can be quite advanced. Yeah. In some cases, hyperlexic. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. 
And, and some of them, we have had kids that have come into my office and they're already spelling words. Uh, that's the hyperlexia part of it and reading. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a two-year-old who could spell Mickey Mouse with, wow. magnetic, with magnetic letters um, and, uh, my, and mighty, M-I-G-H-T-Y. So yes, they, they can be extremely advanced in some cases and those kids are often missed. So they get, they get camouflaged by their advanced development. So not all the kids have the early features, but they tend to still have a bit of the the social stuff. They may be a little bit awkward with their engagement and so on. And they tend to do a lot of talking at rather than speaking with. So they they talk at the parents and want to have long conversations by themselves, essentially, because the parents try to interject and they don't have a chance to do that because the kid just wants to keep telling them about their own interests. So those are some of the uh, the, the early uh, things that we have to be careful about. The low functioning part is a difficult one as well, because um, we have some of our kids that, uh, that um, it's very difficult to predict how they're going to function from the early stages, mm-hmm. because it's, uh, you know, many of them surprise us. So I I don't like to tell a parent their kid is going to be low functioning in in quotes um, that early on until we see how things evolve. So, yeah, if there's a lot of coexisting issues like low tone developmental delays in other areas, that's a little bit of a higher predictor than if there's just Mm -hmm. isolated areas. So it's the coexistence of many more obvious symptoms that may be slightly more predictive. Exactly. It, you know, having a child who is non-speaking does not necessarily mean that you have a child with intellectual disability. Not at all. Not at all. And in fact, one of the issues with non-speaking autistic children or children with autism Mm -hmm. is that they can have a condition called apraxia of speech where they actually don't speak, but they have great language. So they can communicate in other ways. Uh, if you give them a computer, if you give them augmentative communicative devices, they, they come up with phenomenal words and, you, and yet they can't speak because they have a motor problem with their mouth. So mm-hmm. it breaks um, my heart when I hear about children like that and, and they aren't given a computer until they're like nine or 10 years old. And, and so they I haven't mean, had an outlet. Absolutely. Yeah, and- and whether or not the, the screening process for that, because very often when someone is not speaking, there can be an assumption, at least among um, people who don't know these things as well as as specialists might, mm-hmm. there can be that that assumption that it means your kid's not smart. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, and that's unfortunate. I see a lot of kids like that, and. Um, the parents will say, I th- I know he's smart, Dr. Smith, because, and they give me a whole list of things which are absolutely accurate. And that's what makes me realize that they've been missed. And, and, you know, you ask about things like, does your child drool excessively? Does your child have difficulty? I've had children come into my office and I say, can you wiggle your tongue from side to side? And the child tries to do it and they end up moving their head from side to side with the tongue stuck out because mm-hmm. they can't do it. It's, just, it's a motor problem, right? And yeah. that's one of the early signs of that as well. Mm-hmm. One of the other things I just wanted to mention is uh, with regards to comorbidities is that comorbidities often delay diagnosis because mm-hmm. what happens is they camouflage the presentation. 
So I'll give you an example. The way I try to present it to parents is like this. If you have two colors of paint, blue and yellow, and you mix them together, you don't get blue with polka dots of yellow, you get green, right? So sure. what happens is that if a child has autism and has something else, whether it's ADHD or anxiety or a lot of other things thrown in because they can have lots of coexisting problems, it's sometimes difficult to, to differentiate. And in fact, there was a great study done a few years ago in the States where they found that, I forget the percentage, but a significant percentage of kids were diagnosed with ADHD at age four, mm-hmm. were subsequently found to have autism, but the autism was not seen until the ADHD was treated. Mm-hmm. So what yeah. you've done is you've treated one, you've removed one color and the other color comes to the, the top, right? Yeah floats to the top. So if you remove the blue, all of a sudden the yellow comes to the top. (laughs) And so you have now uncovered that ADHD uh, or rather the autism by treating the ADHD. So that's another area that's really fascinating. Mm, That's funny. I've always said, if I treated my anxiety, you would see my executive dysfunction issues like (laughs) through the roof, (laughs) but my anxiety propels me through life, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, now, how many of these these early early signs? Like, I'm trying to think, sort of from an autism lens, how many of them are are like I'm thinking about the regression that you spoke of, are sensory issues where the child is now sort of inundated by features of the environment? What like what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, sensory issues is a whole new area of research. There, there's actually a group from Israel that published some data a few years ago, about two or three years ago, where they found that um, sensory issues are often under-recognized in these kids as a cause of some of the issues, uh, of many of the issues, rather. And uh, sensory issues can can affect sleep. It can affect um uh, you know, attention, it can affect uh, behavior, it can affect social skills, uh, so many different things. And one of the other thing that's important to recognize is that sensory issues and anxiety coexist. Mm-hmm. And I often give the analogy that if you have a if you have an interview tomorrow morning that's really, really urgent and important to you, and you can't sleep and you're worried about this interview, all of a sudden, when you go to bed that night, you notice the clock ticking in your room. That clock's been ticking for the last five years, but all of a sudden, with this interview, you suddenly are hearing that clock. And then suddenly, your back starts to itch you. <laughs> and your back has been itching all day, but you didn't notice it because it was background noise. But now, you're because you're anxious you become more aware of your senses. So kids with anxiety exacerbate their own sensory issues. And that's very important to recognize. So um, sometimes treating anxiety can reduce sensory issues to some degree. It doesn't get rid of them, but it can attenuate or diminish them. And sometimes as well, it's the other way around where the sensory issues are producing the anxiety. And this is actually something that that I very often discuss with my colleagues is the cumulative stress of basically being born with sensory sensitivities and, and social processing difficulties. And, and it's actually that cumulative stress that, that can sometimes cause the nervous system to be overloaded from such a young age. And that can cause regression too. 
Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, sensory issues are, it's, it's a really hot topic right now in research. And, mm-hmm. and it's amazing to read it because it's, uh, it answers a lot of questions which we previously couldn't answer very clearly. Yeah. I, I like to look at it through the lens of um, adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I, obviously, the the original research in that area has nothing to do with autism. But when when I did my thesis, I was like, well, if if we add sensory sensitivities to that list, mm-hmm. um, you know, based on what it would be like for for a young autistic brain. Mm-hmm nervous system in the world that cumulative stress might function as an adverse childhood experience right and then we add the susceptibility to bullying and Mm -hmm. all of the other things and all of a sudden boom you know you have you have really (laughs) you have really a situation in which autistic people are very likely to score higher than than most other people on on that um, on that questionnaire. Yes, exactly. You know, the other thing I just wanted to mention about that is that um, in terms of, um, oh dear, I lost my train of thought. Anyway, <laughs> you're, I think, you're on the right show, Garth. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, what I was going to say to you is with regards to the sensory issues and, and the um, traumatic uh, early experiences, that's the, that's the, what I wanted to get at. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the interesting thing is that there are studies out of Romania looking at the orphanages there. Mm-hmm. And they find that a lot of those kids, as they when they're adopted, depending on the time of adoption, display autistic features. And these mm-hmm. kids are extremely neglected. And what they also found is that the amygdala, the part of the brain, the emotional center of the brain essentially, is often larger than it should be. Yep. And they've also found the same thing in autistic kids. Autistic kids have a larger amygdala than, mm-hmm. than, than their typical uh, neurotypical. Uh, well, mate. yeah, because because it's being it's being activated so much more often. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess one of the other things I just wanted to mention, just going back to the diagnostic issue, is that uh, Kara had mentioned that I have these little quirky things that I ask parents just to help them understand some of the questions that we're asking them. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at the DSM, you know, the DSM-5 or the ICD-10 or whichever one you use, it's it sometimes can be a little confusing for parents. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll say to parents things like, um, does your child play with or does your child play among other kids? And I get this kind of eureka moment where... Ah, yeah, he plays among. He does his own thing, but he is with the group. Um, Does your child, um, is your child a creature of habit? Yes. What do you mean by that? I always ask them to explain. And they say, oh, Mm -hmm. he likes to to follow routine every single day. Um, He has the same breakfast every morning and and then for a month. And then next month he has something different. But Mm -hmm. that goes on for another month. And then the other one I ask is, is your child a stickler for rules? Do they have difficulty with other kids not accepting rules? Mm -hmm. And these are the kids who will be playing soccer at lunchtime at school and noticing the other kids are not taking penalties or offside calls because the other kids are just doing it for fun. 
Mm-hmm. They don't like it because they're not following the rules. So they're constantly whistling, hey, that's a penalty. It should be a free kick or a penalty or, or whatever. Yeah. And, and the other kids are quite upset because they're just having fun, right? <laughs> so they like rules yeah. to, be, to be maintained and followed. So that's another yeah, thing. That, that we, we need that framework to be able to have fun because if the rules aren't followed, then then what's even going on in the world, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Really, autistic yeah. children are meant to be pro soccer players one day. You know? That's, yes. <laughs> they're ready. They're ready. Or referees. Yes. Oh, referees. <laughs> they'd be really good at that. Absolutely. Yeah. I love, I love the I love that you explain it in those terms because I, I could totally see a family not understanding if you if you just said, you know, does your child show rigidity or, you know, some mm. of the some of the mm. Some of yeah. those terms, it might even get the defenses up, right? Whereas if you say, exactly. are they a creature of habit or, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, One of the things that parents will tell me, if I let my medical student or resident do the history, they'll say, does your child play with other kids? Yeah. And if you left it there, you'd make a mistake. Mm-hmm. Because what you need to say is, how does your child play with other kids? Yes. Okay, it's not, it's the qualitative aspect, right? It's not, does your child play? It's how does he or she play? Some of them will play with one other child, mm-hmm. not two or three or four. Mm-hmm. Because with one other child, you can control the environment much more easily. But once you get more numbers, it becomes more difficult. When they do even play with one child, they like to run the rules, make the rules and, and say, this is how we want to play the game. So parents will say they go to the, the park to play and the other kids are playing a game and the child will go over and join them and say, no, 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 no. That's not how you play. It. This is the way you have to play it. And the other kids are quite upset. And then one other child will move away with this child and play it that way. So it's, it's interesting because. This the stickler for rules issue becomes an issue with socialization. It's actually funny because when I was um, I was being evaluated already in second grade, but autism diagnoses back then were were boys diagnoses. Um, And so it wasn't they didn't even consider that that was even an option. But there was this one point in the evaluation where they put me in a group with other kids and I think there were three or four other kids in the room and like two adults doing the evaluations. And I was not interested remotely (laughs) in the other kids, like at all. Um, I was interested in one particular toy that they had in this room that was probably way too expensive and my mom would have never been able to afford it for me. Mm -hmm. So I was just completely hyper-focused on this one toy every single time I was there. (laughs) And whenever I was talking to, um, to the pediatrician alone, they would also have toys in the room. And, you know, they were so impressed with my ability to multitask because I was playing with with these toys and talking to the pediatrician at the same time. Meanwhile, I don't understand why she's talking at me. You know, I'm just playing with the toys that I don't have at home. <laughs> and for some reason, this pinged nothing for them at that point. And I think it just goes to show like how far autism knowledge has really come since the 90s. Yeah. Like it's it's a massive development because well, today, today we would look at that and, and go like, oh, hmm. 
Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the, the male-female issue, that, that obviously mm. is something that's changing, thankfully. But I think it's, it's certainly, um, you know, I've had to go back sometimes 10 years yeah. and reevaluate some of the, the girls I saw when they yeah. were you know, four years old because mm. um, all the questionnaires and all the testing we did just did not pick them up at all. Mm-hmm. But once they hit the early teens, they struggled because mm-hmm. all of a sudden socialization became much more complex. And it wasn't quite as a matter of just speaking. It's a matter of the nonverbal stuff, which is being used, the sarcasm, um, you know, and, and the fingers that are used in different gestures and whatnot. And the and culture it, shift. Absolutely. Yeah. The culture shift that happens in, in girls when they go from preteen to teen yeah. years Absolutely. is massive. Yeah. I just remember being so confused. Yeah. It's, a, it's quite fascinating to me. And, and it's interesting because a number of those kids have come to me now, not kids that I previously saw, but kids I never saw before, mm-hmm. who are now 13. And they're coming in not with query autism. Mm-hmm. They're coming in with, oh, my, my child has some mood issues. You know, yeah. they're starting to uh, act up and, um, you know, uh, they're, they're getting angry all the time. And then when you go back in time, you realize that, in fact, they were camouflaging their symptoms yeah. so well that now they're having more difficulty doing that yeah. because communication and socialization is so much more complex than it used to be. I remember in high school, just like actually my mother would comment all the time that I would come home and I would nap for hours. I was just so exhausted. And I haven't felt that exhaustion until recently when I was really burnt out. But it was the same thing I felt in the teen years. And my mother always said, like, you shouldn't be sleeping this long. But I think that was it. The the demands. Right. Well, you know what I call mm-hmm. that? We we describe to parents when I see a girl um, with a female with autism, potential autism, I say to the parents, "Does you, how's your child after school? And they say, oh my God, that is the time when everything falls apart. <laughs> and I say the four o'clock explosion, they say, absolutely. <laughs> because what happens is they hold it together at school. All day. Yeah. So well, and then they come home and it's like the pot is just about to explode it's been the it's been under the the heat so so long and yeah. they and the lid pushed down so hard I'll, they get home and it's like don't speak to me yes. I need to go and chill in my room you know I am and still like that girl <laughs> I, I still need my dad still, <laughs> that's still a point where where you're coping with the situation though yeah. because what what I see are Obviously, working as a clinical psychologist, I, I tend to see kids when it's gone really wrong. Yeah. Um, so I usually will see kids when they have completely stopped going to school. They've developed mm-hmm. severe depressions, yeah. really severe anxiety. Um, they're completely unable to leave their rooms sometimes. I have, I have colleagues that will actually have to go and do sessions in people's houses because the child cannot leave their own bed yes exactly and it takes years sometimes to actually help that that child that young teenager mm-hmm. to move you know out of their own bedroom yeah and it's it's so 
tragic to me that that very often the signs aren't noticed and they're seen as, you know, mood disorders or, yeah. um, you know, oh, just teen problems or, yeah. oh, they're just being dramatic mm-hmm. or. And they've oh, internalized it as like, they're, they're yeah, like, and, I'm a yeah. bad person, right? Or lazy. Or lazy. lazy. Oh, which, laziness doesn't exist. But. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. So what advice do you give to parents who come to you and say, my child is having these explosions or withdrawing completely when they come home from school? What are the, the first steps to investigate? So, well, if I already have the diet, you mean if I don't know the diagnosis yet? Well, either if I'm, I'm guessing since we're talking about autism, yeah, sure. let's let's assume that we know that we're talking about okay. autism right. and so the, this is just a shift that's happened. The child's moved into the teen years. Yeah. yeah. So the, the first thing I tell the parents is, first of all, teenagers themselves without autism, like isolation, um, they, they're trying to be independent and you add autism to that. It just makes it takes it up a level. Right. Or two or three. And um, and what happens is that they need to get a break. They need to have a time. I, I describe the day of an autistic child or, t- or a, a female, whoever it is, as like going to school, assuming they had a good night's sleep with a full tank of gas. The gas tank up here in the brain is full. By the end of school, they're running on empty. They're running on fumes. So when they get home, they need to refill that gas tank. So giving them a break, no school homework, nothing, just give them a break to go to their room for an hour or so to chill, to refill that gas tank. Some of them have a sleep, some of them have a break, just playing video games or whatever. One hour, don't touch them. Then they come out and they have a big smile on their face. They're feeling much better. That's one way. The other way is preventative, and that's the working of the school. And with the schools, obviously, if it's a teenager, it's a little more difficult, but you can still ask the school to give the child breaks, the teenager breaks at school. Um, you know, you don't call it sensory breaks, but it's really a sensory break. Mm-hmm. They, they need to just be allowed to, to leave the classroom and walk outside for a few minutes, admire the flowers if it's summertime. Or if it's winter, just go take something to the principal's office, uh, a letter or something. And they become the chief carrier of messages to the principal's <laughs> office. Um, and just a break and just take your time to come back. You tell the child, you t- tell the teacher to give the child, uh, you know, make him him or her, t- or her in this case, take their time to come back to the class and then sit down. And it can't be just preventative. It can't be just uh, when necessary. It has to be prophylactic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if you wait till that time when it has to happen, the, the child is already at, at, at an end. Out. Yeah. yeah. I, I always find that one of the one of the big areas where we can make a difference in school is actually the lunch break. Yes. Yeah. Um, because very often the sensory environment during lunch is madness. Exactly. And if it's possible to take that, that, you know, sensorily sensitive child, yeah. whether they're autistic or not, mm-hmm. and move them into a quiet environment. Exactly. Yeah. That takes off a huge burden. A lot um, of my, a lot of my patients actually have, um, 
MP3 players that mm-hmm. they, they go into a quiet room and just listen to music. They, they have their favorite, um, you know, music type of music or singer or whatever and performer. Mm-hmm. And they just sit down for whatever it is, 45 minutes mm-hmm. and listen to that person. Yeah. And it's yeah. very relaxing for them. Mm-hmm. Oh, music can be a huge help. Yeah. Actually, something you said earlier makes me think of um, of something that parents will will come to me with, because, you know, we're we're trying to advocate that parents mm-hmm. allow their children to withdraw. But yeah. very often, especially mothers, I know it's very mm-hmm. it, it's a generalization to say that. But I very often hear it from mothers who are like, but it feels like my child doesn't love me. You know, they don't want to spend time with me. Mm -hmm. They want to be alone in their room. They don't hug me anymore. You know, what do we, what do we say to parents who, you know, are feeling that despair? Because I mean, the the despair is genuine. Mm -hmm. Yes. If the child was a previous hugger mm -hmm. and is no longer hugging them, I would Mm -hmm. say giving them the break is going to, um, replenish that feeling i think they're more likely to come back and 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 want to hug if they have had a break and they're sort of feeling more less tense right less uh less stressed because some of these kids will actually come home not only with anxiety or with stress but also with headaches yes some of them will come home and they say my head is is about to burst and especially the ones that are prone to migraine headaches, that can be a, an additional issue because migraines also increase sensory issues, right? Mm. So it's like a double whammy for these yep. kids. Yeah. So some of these kids, we actually end up prophylactically treating them for migraines because they'll have three migraines a week and they come home from school sick. They're actually vomiting mm-hmm. um, and it's just awful. So it's not everyone we do that with, but some of the kids, it's so impairing for them that we end up doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a, it's a big thing. And it's, it's certainly something we have to have a two-sided approach to, the preventative and then the, how to deal with it at home. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you just look at it one way, then um, it's going to still be there building up at school. And yeah. some of the kids have the four o'clock explosion at, at one o'clock at school. Right. Yes, that's right. You know, it lasts till four. So, well, I mean, the, the the explosion or the or the shutdown, quite frankly, happens when you're out of resources. So, when your capacity is spent, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? Yeah, and you can only stay in robot mode for so long. Exactly. The other point that I just wanted to make there is that autism spectrum disorders are not the only things that cause four o'clock explosions. Attention problems can do that. Learning disabilities can do that. Anxiety can do that. So you add them all up because some of these kids have all three or more. Yeah. And when they come home and that explosion is huge because they've, they've struggled all day with learning because they have a learning disability. They've struggled all day with anxiety because they have a variety of anxieties, whether it's general anxiety or whatever. They've struggled with the fact that everybody in the class is so messy. So they've got a bit of OCD as well. And then (laughs) they struggle with the fact that they also have this social challenge, right? So it's like Mm -hmm. it all adds up and becomes such a problem at the end of the day. So sometimes the management is not just the autism part of it. It's the coexisting problems. Uh, And And Garth, I'm just thinking too, going back to Maya's question about when parents when parents are having trouble sort of 
adjusting to sometimes what is, you know, typical of mm-hmm. teenagers, which is wanting to separate a bit from parents. Yeah. Uh, you have a great analogy about deep sea diving. I would love for you to share. <laughs> okay, my deep sea diving analogy. Okay, so I describe, I don't know how you remember these things, Kara. Uh, you know, it's my autism. My yeah. <laughs> so um, I have this story that I tell my medical students. Um, I say to them, early teenage years is like being a deep sea diver. A deep sea diver that has never entered the deep sea, but they want to enter the deep sea. So when they're going down, they're connected to the boat by two things a hose which carries oxygen and a rope which gives them a chance to tug at if they get into trouble. In the ocean, there are lots of dangerous things. There are barracudas, there are sharks, there are whales, there are octopus, there are all kinds of things down there. So initially, you can't give them too much rope because they, they aren't accustomed to dealing with those enemies, those dangerous things that are out there. But after they've had a chance to prove themselves, then you can extend that rope. The next question I often get is, so what's the oxygen? The oxygen is actually the nurturing, and that never changes. That always exists. So parents will continue to have kids even when they're 40. Like when you're 40 years old and you leave home, you still call home and ask for advice, right? That's always there. That's, well, in most families, not every family, but so you ideally, like to, yeah. <laughs> ideally the oxygen should always be there. You don't cut that off necessarily, but the rope you can cut after a while because you don't need it anymore, or you can extend, extend it. So a lot of a lot of teenagers need that independence, but they have to be given a chance to prove themselves first that they can be capable of being independent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and that most rule, importantly, they're not proving themselves to you, the parent. Yeah. They're proving themselves to themselves. Exactly. Mm, good absolutely. Point. Yeah, absolutely. So that's just my little analogy there. I'm not sure if I got it right, Cara, but that's, <laughs> that's what pretty I good. Really I think good. it's brilliant. I yeah. like it. Uh, should we do thing of the day? Uh, you know what? Yeah, let's do that. All right. So I was thinking about this topic and I was thinking about diagnostic tools and we know they're not perfect. We know, you know, they don't catch everybody, but Spectrum News uh, looked at three studies in different African countries in 2017, where they are trying to, they're actually creating like an open source a diagnostic tool, I believe. I haven't checked to see if there have been advances in the last five years, but okay. So the first group, the first group of researchers is uh, out of South Africa and they translated the ADOS, the autism diagnostic observation schedule into Afrikaans. And they uh, had this done for 40 people who had an autistic child and they were mostly low income families as well. And they discovered that 20 words on the test were not universally understood. Most of these were emotions words. And then more than a third of the parents reported that um, their child would be afraid to play with the toy frog in one of the tasks because reptiles, I guess, you know, reptiles are much more dangerous probably in that part of the world uh, than in Western countries, uh, in North America anyways. And that some activities referenced like blowing out candles on a cake or singing happy birthday would be completely unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. And often, you know, because of gender rules, boys wouldn't want to play with the baby doll. 
Uh, mm. Then the other group of researchers in Tanzania um, found that part of the ADOS, which involves a reading task, only four out of the 51 adults surveyed said that they actually regularly read with their children. And also they commented that, you know, birthday celebrations are really more of like a rich person thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so they wouldn't have those experiences. And then the Ethiopian cohort of researchers uh, found that, and this I don't know why, so I'm curious about this, but they found that the, uh, these families were unlikely to report repetitive behaviors like hand flapping and body rocking, though they noticed social difficulties and speech problems. And this group of, of uh, children were mostly non-speakers uh, and also with intellectual disabilities who tend to be the children most diagnosed in African countries. There's so much stigma. Uh, so you're going to miss a lot of a lot of uh, lower support needs autistics. Uh, but also they found hmm. that lining up toys is not something they could really evaluate in Ethiopia because you might not have a ton of toys to line up. And instead one, one of the children just lined up all the family shoes. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. I think one of the issues with translation of anything is, is exactly that culture, culture Mm -hmm. affects translation. Um, I work in the Northern communities of Ontario where they have the um, indigenous uh, population. And I find the same thing. Um, many folks up there don't, don't look at you when you're talking to them. They get very poor eye contact. And it's not because they're all autistic. It's just because it's a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. You're taught when you're younger, don't look at people when they're talking to you. Um, so, you know, eye contact would be ticked off by by ninety percent of the of the folks up there. So you eliminate that right away as one of the diagnostic criteria. Um, so I think I think translation is difficult, and whether it's translation of the actual toys or or equipment you're using or the actual words. Um, because I'll give you another example. Uh, there's a picture in one of the um, the psychological tests that. Uh, you may be aware of Maya, um, and that's the. It has a picture of a um, of a of a, a, poly, a fire engine on it. No, an ambulance, an ambulance and, on it. Yeah. And they, every child answered it as though it were a fire engine, because up north they do not have ambulances in many of the communities. It's the fire trucks that that pick up people that are sick and bring them to the hospital. No wow. ambulance. So when they saw the thing with the light mm-hmm. on top, they said a-, a fire truck. Yeah. So I'm just giving you simple examples like mm-hmm. that. So we have to be aware of the culture before we interpret the result, right? Yeah. Um, and before we use certain tests, uh, we have to be careful about interpretation. I mean, that's it's a huge thing actually, and and I find it as well. I I don't evaluate young children. Um, myself I usually will evaluate teenagers or adults and in Denmark psychologists aren't allowed to set the diagnosis um, or our municipalities don't acknowledge that psychologists can diagnose people so they'll they'll only accept it from psychiatrists but we we will still do the evaluation and like do a report for the psychiatrist to look at um And what I find very often is that we actually need to go through the questionnaires with the person 
in person yeah. because so often the questions are misunderstood. Yeah. Um, and and also, you know, when when you're asking someone, and I think this goes for for parents as well. Like, does your child do this? Well. Yeah, but do they do it more than other kids? I don't know. I've only ever had this kid. Yeah. Like, how am I supposed to know what's normal and what's, you know? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And and so, like, I I really think that there's there's been this tendency to keep people out of the knowledge of how do we diagnose. And I don't always think it's useful. Sometimes we really do need to include people and we really do need to sit there with them and be like, no, this question is meant this way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because otherwise they might they might actually answer in a way that will prevent them from getting a diagnosis that they do qualify for. Right. Especially, they- especially as autistic adults, like if you if you are late diagnosed or you're seeking a diagnosis and I know autistic people have the tendency where we want to be accurate and precise all the time so anything with Likert scales I cannot do I I've it's always been a problem even like high school multiple choice true or false I would write my answer like I wouldn't just circle I need to tell you what I know and 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 we're more likely to give sort of an inaccurate answer I think because of our tendency to overthink what is it really asking or what is it trying to collect yeah, but this goes for parents too, because <laughs> yeah. and autism, many of them are autistic. Exactly. Autism is so hereditary, there is most likely at least one autistic parent. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is that besides just being hereditary, you, you actually have more neurodevelopmental problems in the family as well. So mm-hmm. it may be ADHD or specific learning yeah. disabilities or anxiety or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And that complicates the issue as well, because sometimes the parents, oh, the other one that I hear a lot, which just occurred to me is, yeah. oh, my my new new little son, he's, he's just, you know, eight, 10 months, oh, sorry, two years old, and he's starting to mimic his brother's behavior. Oh, yes. <laughs> the autistic, the non-autistic child will not mimic the autistic child's behavior. That is so rare to see that. It's more likely he'll be correcting his older brother and saying, don't do it like this. This is the way you are to do it, right? So when I hear parents saying the other sibling is mimicking their older sibling who is autistic, I often take a deep breath because I say, hmm, maybe I should keep a close eye on that sibling, you know? And then... Invariably, two years later, we get a question, uh, a, a child, the child referred to us with the question of possible autism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's fascinating. I think the, uh, the whole issue of, um, of, of, fam- of culture and family and all these different things. And I think uh, culture is really something that we have to be careful about, you, yeah, the utilization absolutely. of words. I say to every parent that comes to my office, I say, the reason I'm spending two hours with you at least is because my philosophy is a better description allows for a better prescription. Mm-hmm. In other words, the more I understand your child, the better I can tell you what to do about him or her. If I were to rush through and make a diagnosis and I didn't get all the details, I could give you wrong advice mm-hmm. or the wrong diagnosis because there are lots of lookalikes out there. 
right? And sometimes a lot of people will jump to the conclusion the child has ADHD or anxiety and forget about looking at autism because the ADHD is hitting in your face because the kid is all over the room, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, they so they they don't realize the child actually does have autism because they're so fixated on this hyperactive child in their office. Mm-hmm. And some of that hyperactivity could be sensory, right? So as you were talking about Maya, <coughs> excuse me. Yeah, it's for me the the amount of the amount of autistic people that I see that have one or more comorbidities mm-hmm. is is quite astounding. Um, yeah. You know, it's I I sometimes don't think that that autism is the primary problem for a lot of people. I feel like well this is this is true for myself as well but it's certainly also true for so many of the people that that I speak to mm-hmm. is it's the anxiety or it's the reoccurring depressions or you know it's the ocd it's or even untreated adhd either through medication or through strategies like yeah. when you when you don't have what you Tools. need to yeah when you don't have what you need to deal with whatever else you have, autism becomes a huge issue. Yeah. So, you know what I would add to that, Maya? I would mm-hmm. add to that the fact that, in fact, in, in almost every autistic child I see, they go through phases. Mm-hmm. And at different phases of their, their life, different mm-hmm. comorbidities may surface as the bigger problem. Mm-hmm. Right. So when they first hit the school system, yes. the first thing the teachers see is the hyperactivity, right? Mm-hmm. If the child happens to have that comorbidity. So they get referred to a pediatrician or a family doctor and they get treated for their hyperactivity. As they get on in school, people are starting to notice their different ways of playing or not playing with other kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the autism stuff comes up. As they go further on, the anxiety may show itself. And especially in preteens, we see a, a surge of anxiety coming up as they hit mm-hmm. about between 9 and 12. The anxiety tends to start climbing. Mm-hmm. And after that, you know, and some, at any stage in there, the learning disability comorbidity may be there as well. Mm-hmm. The other thing we have not talked about is the physical comorbidities, like yes. uh, developmental coordination disorder and things like that. Many of these kids are clumsy, right? So we like to say, well, if your child has difficulty making friends, give him, get, let him get into sports. Well, oh, hockey, base, uh, basket, uh, basketball or soccer, forget it. Football, mm-hmm. no, can't do that because he is not very coordinated. He might be able to swim or do taekwondo or or judo but forget about those multitasking uh multiplayer type and uh, uh, activities they can't do it so that is another source of stress for families mm-hmm. because they're trying to get their child to socialize and they're trying to get their child to be engaged with other activities um, to get them thinking less about their problems, but that's difficult. I always recommend tabletop role-playing games. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I, I do that because it's usually a fairly small group, or at least you can you can usually find um, groups that, that set up smaller tabletop role-playing groups. And in in most areas, because role playing has become such um, such a popular interest over the last, I don't know, ten years something, mm-hmm. um, 
usually if you have, you know, a teenage child, you'll be able to find somewhere where they have, um, you know, people who know something about autism and who mm. run, for example, Dungeons and Dragons groups mm. or whatever. And, and so you have an adult game master in, in D and D it's called a dungeon master. Sounds terrible. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you, you have a game master who's an adult and who can support and structure you know, it a little. Yeah, yeah exactly. And you also have an environment where not only can you socialize, but you can also take breaks and you can mm -hmm. ask questions and you can be open and honest about your difficulties without kind of being judged because a lot of the kids that do role-playing games are, you know, usually nerds. judged. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. and, and they're yeah. usually the outsiders. They usually have their own difficulties. They might not be the same difficulties, but, you know, there's... I don't know. I just see so many kids that find acceptance and, you know, joy and friendships in that environment. And yeah. fun fact, I play Dungeons and Dragons with Garth's son. <laughs> and, really? Yeah. And well, uh, there you go. <laughs> but the other thing that's great about, about role-playing games is it does allow you to sort of practice interactions and, and, and practice different decision-making things that you might not do in real life or be confident to do in real life. Mm -hmm. um, you make decisions on the fly. You have to discuss with people. You can really slow it down and break things down. Mm -hmm. Um well, you make decisions. So I think it has a lot of great, uh, like other life skills that you learn through playing those games. It does. One of the things that I actually used it for was to try on different personalities, not yeah. because yeah, yeah, I yeah. wanted, not because I wanted to explore different identities for myself, but because it helped me to figure out why do people do what they do? Yes. <laughs> and if you're, if you're, you know, using other characters or fiction, even mm -hmm. to explore, you know, those social contexts and different motivations that people can have, mm -hmm. um, you know, how do other people maybe experiment, experience emotions or like, yes. you know, relationships, whatever they're doing, yeah. why are these other things so important to other people? Right. Exactly. Um, and, and practicing that in a safe setting gives you the foundation to go out and do it in real life. Yeah. Yeah. Not that you'll always succeed, but I don't think anybody does. <laughs> I just have to tell you one quick story. One of my, uh, quite not one, several of my patients will tell me when I ask them how many friends they have, they'll say, oh, I have about five or six. And uh, I say, oh, you have five or six. That's awesome. So what do you do with them? Why oh, play video games? Oh, where do you play it? Oh, online. Have you met these friends? Never. Hmm. Hey, do you know what their names are? No. Um, you know, I just play games with them. Yeah. But they they literally have no friends outside of that environment. So mm -hmm. they, their idea of friendship, and it, it it's it's one of the ways they actually deal with their own lack of friends is is mm -hmm. by doing that. Mm -hmm. I think is it I think it has a positive side to it because they are so proud that they have these six friends. Um Obviously, there are some dangers sometimes with having friends online. They're, yeah, uh, parents new. would definitely have to monitor. That's yeah, for sure. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But it's it certainly has some positive sides to it as well because some of these kids would be so depressed if they had yeah. if mm -hmm. they didn't have those. If friends. they were cut off from that, yes, yeah. that can well, cause a huge crash. 
I just read a study. I should. I didn't. Don't have all the details. This is off the top of my head, but it basically looked at um, like typed communication and how uh, neurotypical folks would rate autistic people as very high in likability from the typed communication, but then not in face to face communication. So, a lot of times, access to communities online through technology, removing some of those like face to face barriers that might exist, mm-hmm. uh, allows autistic people to be more successful. But the thing mm-hmm. is, we don't want them to just be successful online. We also want them to be able to um, feel good in in face to face communities too. Okay, but here's what I find though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, uh, World of Warcraft um, since launch. I'm in a guild that has members all over Europe. Well, not all over. It's it's pretty much centered around Scandinavia, UK, Ireland, and Holland. That's that's the primary. Um, And so I'm a fairly recent member of this guild. I've only been there for four or five years, something like that. But they've existed for 12 or 13 years. And I went to, and I tell this story sometimes when I, when I talk about computer games and, you know, online friends and and such, because I think it's so important. Obviously, most of these people are, are, you know, grown adults. Um, Some of them are, you know, grandmothers and such, but I went to a real life meetup. So obviously most of the communication is, is just through World of Warcraft and Discord and all of that. But there was this, this meetup, 15 people came to one house in the UK for a week. Not everyone was there all the time, but 15 people throughout that week. Four people there were autistic. I'm surprised it wasn't more actually, but yeah. <laughs> I haven't mentioned the other diagnoses that were presented. (laughs) Lots of neurodiversity. (laughs) Lots of neurodiversity for autistic people. I've never felt so accepted Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so free to be authentically autistic. Mm -hmm. At one point, uh, one of the other autistics and myself, we were in the kitchen, which is kind of in the central area of the house. We were in the kitchen and, and we were happy stimming about something like we were both flapping our hands, rocking from side to side. And we were just having a blast. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw a couple of the others kind of pass through the kitchen and just stop and just look, just just give us a quick look and then keep walking. And I realized after a couple of them had done it, that for the first time, I was in a house where I didn't expect people to judge me based on the stimming. They were just checking to see, all good? Yeah, happy stimming. Great, cool, move on. Mm -hmm. Or even, you know, being happy for us and kind of wanting to join in, but being like, oh, I'm not autistic. I shouldn't do that. But it looks so much fun. And that level of acceptance, I think sometimes you find it through people that you meet through unconventional paths. Yeah, because it's a small pool of kids at school. You're not necessarily going to find your neurodivergent kindred spirits, you know? No, exactly. (laughs) I'll tell you something. One of the things that I find um, 
fascinating is, you know, when kids come into my office, I think I mentioned this briefly before, but I say, always say to the parents or to the child, I say, tell me some things you're good at or tell me some good things about you. Yeah. And it's amazing to watch the parents' facial reaction. They're so shocked because what they came in with a list of problems this high yeah. and they thought they were going to be coming and talking to me about the problems. And I said, no, I, we're going to get to that. But what I want you to, first of all, tell me is some good things about your kid. Yeah. Why did I do that? Well, I did that because after doing this for so many years, I discovered about 10 years ago, I have to stop doing what I used to do. Because the kids would look like they would like to be anywhere but there. Yeah. yeah. Because the parents would start listing all the problems your kid has, all the, the ostracizing and the bullying and the, the negative experiences. And they wish they, the child, you could see, he's quivering in his chair and wants to get onto my desk and hide if possible. Mm -hmm. And I would just say, when I said the positive things, the kid would start to smile. And he'd say, yeah, Dr. Smith, and I'm also good at this, and I'm also good at that. And my favorite video game is, I say, awesome, that's great. Good to hear these good things about you. And for the rest of the en encounter, the child would be volunteering things. Even though we got into some of the problems, mm -hmm. the child would volunteer information to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that just changed the environment totally. But the interesting thing was, Sometimes in listening to that list of positivities, you actually got a clue that the child was autistic. Yeah, I'm sure. Because the parents would say, oh, he's super smart. Yeah. Oh, okay. So what makes you say that? He knows oh, all the capitals of every he country. Knows the, he knows all the countries of the world and their capitals in alphabetical order. <laughs> okay. And he can say them backwards too. Wow. Awesome. That's good. What else? What else does he know? He knows every planet in the in the in the uh, universe, and he can tell you the distance from Earth. Wow. Okay. Well, that's really awesome. And meanwhile, my brain is saying, "Okay, this kid is either really gifted, or he's on the autism spectrum, or anyway, both." Yeah. Yeah. He's so nine years old, and he can name every European war since the 1400s. Right. <laughs> It's, it's funny. It's funny how many kids like the wars. I've had yeah. so many kids know about World War II in detail and every bit of it, and it's it's fascinating. I think I think history is just fascinating because it's it's dates and and numbers and events yeah. and facts, and you can put them into system and you can figure yeah. out oh this happened there, but then this happened there because of that, and then. Mm -hmm. Um, and yet so many of my students hate history. I have a few who love, but I've had so many who hate it. And I love history. So, but I think for them, I maybe it's taught without a context of why it's yeah. important. So I always say like, really, we're learning about human behavior through history. Yeah. Like we're mm -hmm. learning about what pe how people have responded to things in the past. And mm -hmm. we have to focus on the emotional impact of events to really understand why we still talk about these events. Um, but I digress. That's a that's a tangent. No, but, no, but it's <laughs> it's an important one because many autistic people are very interested in in systems and numbers and facts and, and keeping yeah. things in their boxes. But then there are the other ones of us for whom people are a special interest. And I mm -hmm. had that same experience. I was not interested in history until I realized. And unfortunately, this wasn't until like high school 
age until I realized history is about people having made decisions and the consequences those decisions have. Yeah, exactly. And that's what made it interesting for me. So I think there's, you know, there's that other segment of autistic people who we just have, we still have special interests. They are still special interests, but they're (laughs) different from what is expected based on the classic profile. Mm-hmm. Which no, I, I think, think bring, brings me to pro- probably like an ending question, if that's sure. okay. Um, what would you say is kind of a defining characteristic that is a positive thing about autistic people? Okay, a defining characteristic. Um, Obviously, nothing is going to apply to everyone. No, no. I, I, I just think it's, um, it's just their perspective on things. I, I think they, they have a different perspective, um, and it's always fascinating to me to, exp- to, to ask them to expand on it because um, I learn things from many of my autistic kids. I'll tell them this. I say, you have taught me so much in the one hour I've met with you at my follow-up appointment that I would never have learned otherwise. So I think it's it's just the, the unique perspective that they tend to have on life in general and on, mm. on, on things in our world in general. Mm. Um, you know, I, I I just think it's so amazing. I, I, I'll tell you, I know you're ending on this, but I'll just tell you one quick story that I think is really a fascinating one. This little boy came in to see me when he was four years old and he came into my office with four, with, sorry, with two extension cords in his hand. And I said to his mom, extension cords, that's interesting. What's that for? He says, Dr. Smith, he has always loved extension cords. For his first birthday, he, he, he not first, second birthday, he wanted an extension cord. They got it for him. I don't know if you, you probably wouldn't know this, Maya, but there's a place in Canada called Canadian Tire. <laughs> and they sell, they, they sell electrical stuff and all that stuff. That's his favorite store of all times. <laughs> He'd go there for every birthday. He would go there to Canadian Tire. Wow. When he, was, when he was eight years old, he had about 50 extension cords in his house. And then he said to his mom, I've had enough of extension cords. Now I want to have a remote control car. When he was 16 years old, his father was mowing the lawn with one of these driven lawn mowers that he had to drive. And the kid saw his father mowing and was watching him in fascination. All of a sudden, the motor stopped and he couldn't drive it anymore. So the father got angry, went off to go and pick up the repair guy to fix his lawn mower. When he came back, his son had pulled the entire engine apart and had it on the lawn. He was livid. So anyway, he, he got the guy back in the car and he drove him back, swearing the whole way back to his to the garage. When he came back, his son was riding the lawnmower on the lawn. Does not surprise me at all. <laughs> he, uh, he fixed the lawnmower. This same kid is now 24 years old and runs a small engine store in Kingston, Ontario, where I live. In fact, two years ago, he came to my house and fixed my lawnmower for me. <laughs> That is so awesome. It started as extension cords. Yeah. Okay. Wires. 
and went into small engines, uh, remote cars, and then eventually into fixing small engine vehicles. So uh, that's the fascinating thing. They have a perspective. They have a, uh, it's just, you know, I say to parents, don't discourage some of their fixations because the, some of these fixations translate in later life into, into a job. Being interested in animals sometimes results in them getting a degree in oceanography. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm, I've been doing this long enough. This is my 35th year now. Um, and I have seen kids grow up and graduate from university and come back in, in my office and tell me what they're doing. And it's just been a fascinating experience. So I love their perspective on life. I love their how they interpret things. I, I think that's probably one of the most fascinating things for me. And there tends to be a love of learning, which is basically what you yes. described. They're very independent learners driven to learn about their areas of passion. And, and sometimes it's hard to see the end point yes. at the beginning. Yeah. But you have to have a little patience. Well, as Paula Kluth says, she says, you don't have to understand the passion in order to honor it. That's right. right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and also, you know, there are a lot of autistic fixations, special interests that don't translate into jobs, but they still yeah. translate into joy yes, and, exactly. you know, quality of life. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's worth something. Absolutely. Even if even if it doesn't make money, yeah. Um, you know what? I I actually can I ask one more last question, please. <laughs> <laughs> I love your questions. <laughs> so, because both of us we we deal so much with parents, and I mean Cara does too, obviously through her job. Um, and and very often when I do speaking engagements, I'm asked do you have a piece of advice for me? Yada, yada, yada. And and I'm always pulling advice, you know, out of a backpack that I didn't know I was carrying. Um, but I, I find that for me, they always intersect somehow. So if you were to sum up your primary advice to parents, um, and of course, by proxy also to young people yeah. who may or may not be listening to this podcast, we hope. What would it be? Okay, I think for parents, I think what I said a few minutes ago about seeing the positives in your child, I think we all, whether it's autism or other coexisting problems, we tend to look for the negatives. And one of the difficulties with questionnaires is that questionnaires force us to look for negatives. If you look at the ADHD questionnaires, they all look for the kid is not sitting still. He's disruptive in the class. It's it's all forcing us to look at negatives. We have to force ourselves to look for positives. And I think um, I would I encourage every parent to stop just looking at the negatives and look at the positives. Russell Barkley, a very famous psychologist from the States, Mm -hmm. he says, if you can find five times to give your child positive attention, for every one time you have to give them negative attention, you're probably going to be successful. Mm-hmm. And I think too often we ignore the positives and focus on the negatives, and that creates more challenges for your child. I tell I tell kids I say um, don't when what often drives the kids that I look after the most 
in a negative direction is the negative feedback from their peers. Mm -hmm. And that's hard because there are some mean children out there that just don't realize the harm they're doing to their peers when they do things like that. And one of the things I try to tell the kids, I said, you know, where there's no audience, there's no show. So I say to them, if you if you ignore the person that's bullying you and just walk off and smile, it makes them so upset they'll leave you alone. It may not happen the first time or the second time or the third time, but eventually it may happen. And that's one thing I, I, I tell a lot of my, the, my patients. And some of them have come back and said it worked. It took a week, but it worked. And it just, you know, they, the other kids expect you to react. Yep. But if you don't react, it annoys them because what they want is a show. And if you don't give them, if you don't, if you don't give them an audience, they will, th- their show is, is, is worthless, right? What they're trying to create is worthless. So mm-hmm. I think it's, it's a matter of not giving them an audience because you're not paying attention to what they're doing. And eventually the show stops. So I think I think that's that's what I that's one of the bits of advice. I have lots of other ones that I yes, use. Yes, you do. <laughs> but that one, I, I I don't know if you can remember any other ones, Cara. But I that, that's one of the ones that I have found recently is the most challenging for the kids. Is that they get so much negative attention, and I think um, uh, I I try to get them to be more positive. And I also try to work on the teachers at school, not teachers like yourself, Cara, who are experts, but teachers that are not experts. Mm-hmm. And I say to them, you know what, if, you're, if your child in your classroom is very artistic or is very um, good at something, make a show of it. You know, mm-hmm. give them a chance to, to show off, make a show and tell thing in the classroom. It's so empowering for these kids to know that, wow. And one of my kids was into the um the uh mummies in egypt he knew all about mummies in egypt and he stood up in front of the class and gave it gave a a talk on mummies in egypt and he got a standing ovation from his classroom and Mm -hmm. that was the first time ever he had had that and i think it just if you can encourage the teachers to you know to encourage the kids Mm -hmm. to show off their skills if they have skills to show off that's another very positive thing. Love it. It yeah. reminds me of um, a campaign many, many years ago on YouTube. I can't believe I just said that sentence. Um, <laughs> there was a campaign called "It Gets Better," and it was yes. it was aimed at um, you know LGBTQ plus yeah. yeah yeah and and people who were. Um, well, not straight. Mm-hmm. Um, so all all kinds of queer and trans and everything kids. And mm-hmm. I just think for for so many autistic children, they actually need that campaign. Yeah. But exactly. for neurodiversity, yeah. Like just the knowledge that it gets child- better. You'll find your people. You'll yeah. find your people. Small pool in elementary, small pool in high school. But beyond that, you'll find your people. Yeah. yeah one, of, one of my patients created the geek club at his school. <laughs> I love it. He, he, found, awesome. he, he started with two kids who were also 
aspies, as he called them. Mm-hmm. And then and then he went to the principal and said, can we get a club? And the principal said, sure, I'll check with Dr. Smith first. But sure, it sounds good to me. By the end of the year, he had 12 people join his geek club, all of whom had high functioning autism. Wow, that's incredible. (laughs) That is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Garth. It's been a pleasure talking with you as always. Yes, it's a pleasure, Cara. Good to see you again. You too. Maya, wonderful to meet you. You sound like a wonderful person. She is. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been such a pleasure to meet you as well and to hear your perspective on things. It's right. Well, have a good rest of your year. You too. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye, Garth.